0: All right, my name is Mark, I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central Church, and uh, it's great to be able to be here with uh, all of us together this morning, and we're going to spend some time looking into the Word of God. Now, as I've been uh, preaching over the last few weeks and months, we've started into Mark's Gospel, the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible with you, you may want to turn to that Gospel. We will put some of the verses up on the screen, hopefully they will come up. Uh, and uh, as I read into it in a moment, you'll be able to follow up there as well. So uh, Mark's Gospel, and we are up to around verse 14, so that's where we're going to start in a moment. Um, We've been asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's a question that really is asked throughout Mark's Gospel, and what does that mean for us as well? It's a big question. In fact, I would say it's one of the most important questions you could ever ask yourself, who is Jesus? Um, we've already seen just from this first few verses in the first chapter that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He'll, he is the one who will come with power. He is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so today, as I say, we come to verse 14. and We're going to read um, from verse 14 through to verse 20. And it says this, After after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their net. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. All right, let's flip back to the first few verses. So interesting, we get to the first verse here that we're looking at today, and uh, right away, we kind of, it almost brings us up short. We, we, we have to stop in our tracks and say, what? What, what are we talking about here? John the Baptist, who is the John who is being referred to here, John the Baptist is the one who's come as the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one who's making a way for him. He's come from God and he's been baptizing people. And so we read here that John is put in prison. John is imprisoned and this very act prompts Jesus to go into Galilee And proclaim the good news of God. And you think, well, what's that about? John's been put in prison and Jesus goes and says, good news. He's your man. John is your man. It doesn't look particularly good news. Right from the get-go, it doesn't look like good news. And we find out in the Gospels, in the other Gospels, that John is going to end up dead. Pretty soon afterwards, he's going to end up with his head presented to Herodias' daughter as the centerpiece of a meal on a platter. I mean, forget your Thanksgiving turkey and all that. This is, this is like, sorry about that. (laughs) This is, you know, this is serious stuff. We've had Thanksgiving. (laughs) But it's the good news. The good news is being presented, but John's being killed. He's in prison. He's dying and Jesus says repent and believe the good news and you can forgive people for asking the question "Well, what good news? What good news? We've gone to John and we've been baptized and he said here was one coming who was going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and all of that and now he's in prison and you want us to believe the good news But the good news of the gospel is good news that is proclaimed in adversity, in trouble, in hardship, in darkness, not in the ease and the comfort of life. The Bible consistently tells us that life as a follower of Jesus will be tough, will be difficult. But in the midst of that, there is good news. John chapter 1 and verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness. And that's what we look at as we come to Christmas, isn't it? We, we come to Christmas and we say, those who are walking in the valley of the shadow of death has dawned. A great light has come. That's what we believe. If we don't get this, if we don't understand this, we can wonder Well, why? We're following Jesus and we're going through tough times. Well, yeah. Because Jesus didn't say we won't go through tough times. This is huge. This is huge for us in our walk with Jesus. Because otherwise, we're going to get disappointed and we're going to get disillusioned. And you know, someone said, if you don't want to get disillusioned, don't get illusioned in the first place. You know, let's not have an impression of what life following Jesus is going to be like. It's not all going to be a bed of roses. We mustn't allow ourselves to be deceived by the abundance of teaching that is out there, prosperity teaching, teaching such as like, oh, surely, surely we are children of the king, so we are going to be living like royalty. You hear that kind of teaching today. We're going to live as royalty We should expect to have the best things. God's going to pour out his blessings on us. Yes, God does pour out his blessings on us. But it's not necessarily the blessings that we might expect in a materialistic world. Let's not be deceived. It won't help us. So John is arrested. And yes, he will be killed. And in the same way that John prepared the way for Jesus' arrival, and he was the forerunner of Jesus, he is the forerunner for Jesus in his death too. John died as a preparation for Jesus' death, as a forerunner for Jesus' death. John was a thorn in Herod's side. Herod, who was the one who had him put to death, you know, John was coming and saying, yeah, you shouldn't be doing this. He was bringing some correction to the king. You you shouldn't be marrying this person. You shouldn't be with this person. He's your brother's uh, wife, Herodias. It was a thorn in Herod's side. And Herod would have thought, well, by putting him to death, that's going to have dealt with the problem. But after John comes Jesus, a new king, bringing about a new kingdom. And Jesus, too, would stand before Herod. And Jesus, too, would be sent to his death. And again, it would seem as though it was a crushing defeat. But this apparent defeat for Jesus actually was his greatest victory. We've already heard He is the victor. He is the undefeated one. Even though it looked like he was down and out, he was not. Jesus was raised again. This apparent defeat actually was a defeat for the power of evil. It was a defeat over death. It brought forgiveness of sins. It brought the unleashing of a new power in the lives of, as Jesus, of Jesus' followers. Jesus' victory is hidden in the cross in what seems like the darkest, darkest day. But that's where Jesus' victory is hidden. Jesus' power is found in his seemingly powerlessness. And it's the same for us. If we are to follow him, if we are to be followers of Jesus, that will be what it looks like in our life. We will seem as though we are powerless, but we have this power, this treasure in jars of clay. We will seem as though we are the weak ones. We will be seemingly walking in difficulty and trouble, but it's there we will find strength and power and life and light. Jesus says, you will truly live, you will find life by giving your life. To be a follower of Jesus, we have to change our entire way of thinking and we allowed God to turn it upside down. It's an upside down kingdom. And do you know what? Many people, they find they can't do that. And they simply don't recognize who Jesus was. They see him as a good man who had some good teaching, but in the end was defeated. In the end was powerless. They don't hear and believe the good news. But Jesus comes and he proclaims the good news of God. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, we've spent a lot of time through summer and the fall looking at what the kingdom of God is. So I'd encourage you, if you want to find out more about the kingdom of God, listen to those messages. We're not going to spend too much time on that today. But let's focus today on repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news in the good news. The gospel involves repenting and believing. It's about turning away from sin and turning toward God. It's not just about believing. It's not just about believing. First comes repentance. And as I said, repentance is a turning away from our old life. And this is something that actually as believers we're we're kind of often tempted to shy away from for a number of different reasons. Some of us actually don't really understand what sin is and and how God sees sin. And the importance of it, we kind of minimize it. I mean, it's kind of, we say, oh, we all make mistakes. We're only human. God understands our weaknesses. Well, yes, but here's the sort of prayer that we might pray if we have that view. We might pray something like, oh, loving and easygoing Father, we've occasionally been guilty of errors of judgment. We've been affected by our upbringing and the disadvantages of where we live. We've, we've sometimes not acted with common sense. We've done the best we could in the circumstances and just always tried to be decent. We're glad to think that in all this we're fairly normal. So God, please deal lightly with our infrequent lapses. Be kind to those of us who admit that we're not perfect according to your tolerance, which... We have a right to expect from you. And and grant us our indulgent parent. We may always continue to live a harmless and happy life. And keep our self-respect. Um, that, that, That's... Possible <laughs> <according to Mark. laughs> Not this Mark. <laughs> Not this Mark either. <laughs> we can kind of have that view of sin. It's just like, oh, well, we all struggle, don't we? Actually, we only have to read the Word of God to see how much God hates sin. We don't have the option of making out that it's insignificant, or that it's just like, oh, it's just our weakness. We need to repent. We need to turn from our sin. Actually, we need to hate sin in the way that God hates sin. And I would say, and we'll move on to who we hate the sin. We need to hate the sin in our own life, Primarily. Some people will always look to blame others for their sin. They'll always think that deep down, they're a fairly nice person. They'll just look to blame shift. Um, started right in Genesis 3. Adam blamed Eve. Genesis 3 verse 12. Uh, Adam says, the woman uh, you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Straight away, passing the buck. Blame shifting, putting it onto someone else. Eve does the same thing. Oh, well, it was the serpent's fault. He, he did that. And we see it all the way through the Bible in in sin. Um, Exodus 32 is another example. Um, This is where the Israelites build the idol of the golden calf. And uh, Moses comes down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments and the law. And he asks Aaron, what made you lead the people in this? And first of all, Aaron blames shifts and he blames the people. He says, you know how prone these people are to evil. Um, They said to me, make us gods who will go out before us. Um, As for this fellow Moses who brought us up for Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Um, So he's blame shifting onto the people. And then he says, so I told them, well, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Now He's blaming the fire now. (laughs) well, I just got some gold and threw it in and then this calf came out and all the people started worshipping it and it's like, Aaron, take some responsibility, man. He's blame shifting. It happens all the time. And we can blame shift. We can think, oh, well, other people are worse than us. There's reasons why we did that and it's the whole upbringing thing and all of that. We can look to blame anyone other than take responsibility for our rebellion against God. Um, Others actually are passionately opposed to sin in the world, but actually they express that anger and hate even, not towards just sin in themselves, but towards other people and they they feel self-righteous about themselves. They feel like, well, we've got it all right and it's those people who are the sinners and that's who I'm going to focus my attention on and that's pretty much what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day and there are many modern day Pharisees. There are many people who defend uh, a godly lifestyle or what they, their vision of a godly lifestyle is. Their impression just happens to be a godly lifestyle that, that looks like their lifestyle. Um, so they may speak out against certain things, abortion, homosexuality, but maybe may never about greed or love of money or pride or anything like that. Or, and, and some people it's vice versa. Um, and, and so you see things like this. Now, I, I kind of wonder if this is a joke, but I don't think it is. So you see signs like this on the ch- on, on on church buildings um, or outside church. You know, surface skateboarders, musicians, artists, vegetarians, occupiers, activists, addicts, and fornicators are all going to hell. Repent now. It's like, what? You know what sort of thing? Now, I, I'm like, is that a joke? I don't know. I don't think this one was a joke, but um, it's kind of funny. Um, LAUGHTER Mount Pleasant Baptist Church (laughs) but this uh, that kind of (laughs) that kind of anger towards people that doesn't draw people to God it repels them I mean, just imagine in the story of the prodigal son, the lost son, if the son is on his way home and instead of running out to meet him is the father who graciously forgives him and welcomes him and says, you're my son, welcome back, put a robe on you, a gold ring. Imagine if the older son was the one who went out on the road to meet him. Ah, oh, you waste of space, what are you going away, you've left us all to it. You know what? The son would never have got home. He would have turned around. He would have gone right back. But yet, we can do that. As churches, as people who call ourselves believers in God, we act more like the older son than the father. And we're to be representatives of the father's love. And so for many of us, we see all this and it doesn't fit with how we see Jesus in the Gospels and he didn't go shouting at the prostitutes and the tax collectors and telling them they were going to hell. But the danger is we can go too far the other way and think, oh, well, then we're just going to be nice to people. It doesn't really matter how you live. God loves you anyway, so... You know, any relationship that's a loving relationship, that's fine. And surely God won't send people to hell who are sincere and they're trying to live a good life. And actually we can move right away from the message of repentance at all and and shy away from it. No, Jesus calls us to repent. We need to agree with God. We need to, as a church, we need to preach the need for repentance without having people there just feeling... Condemned by us. Actually, it's God who brings conviction of sin, not condemnation from his people. God ca- ca- Jesus calls us to repent. We need to agree with God that we are living lives in rebellion to him. And we need to go our way and not go his way and not our way. We need to change our minds. We need to begin to turn and go God's way. Jesus doesn't reprimand us when he calls us to repent. But he does invite us to switch allegiances and to follow him, to switch our allegiances. Back in nineteen eighty-five, I had the um, I had the privilege of being invited to go to uh, the probably the biggest sporting event in the UK at the time, which is a soccer um, game. So I'm going to educate you a bit about British. Uh, British sports here. I don't have many sports illustrations that are Canadian at the moment or American. So, anyway, I got to go to the, the big soccer final, the FA Cup final, all right, the FA Cup final. This is the big thing. It's, it's like the equivalent of the Stanley Cup or the World Series, all right, but it's just a one game. One game decides all. And it's held at Wembley Stadium. And in 1985, it was held between Manchester United, who weren't actually that good a team at the time, and Everton who were a very good team at the time. And uh, I didn't support either team particularly, but I just managed to get hold of some tickets, someone had given them me, we went down, a few of us. And so we're walking up and we're thinking, well, who, you know, we need to support someone here, who are we gonna follow, who are we gonna cheer for? So I, and we didn't know where we were sitting in the ground, so I said, well, I'm gonna support Everton. They were the ones I thought were most likely to win. So I'm, I'm like, so I buy a scarf on the way in, I buy an Everton scarf and I'm, Putting it around my neck, okay, I'm an Everton supporter for this. So I get into the ground, and I sit down in my seat, and I'm looking around. Everyone's Manchester United supporters. (laughs) like I'm at the Manchester United end. I'm like, oh, no. So people are looking at me going, why are you wearing that? "Mm." Anyway, they were all very nice, because sometimes football soccer supporters aren't, but they were. I was only uh, 16 years old or so at the time. And uh, anyway, we're watching this game, and I'm, s- I'm cheering for Everton, quietly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> everyone else around me is cheering for Manchester United. And the game goes on, and there's no score at all, and it gets to overtime. And uh, it towards the e- even towards the end of overtime, still no score. And uh, it's not a great game, this one. Uh, Quiet, it no. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great game yesterday, 5-4. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> so it's, it, there's no Scott, and these there were some people around me, and they've been trying to persuade me throughout the game. You need to switch allegiances. You need to start supporting Manchester United. I'm like, no, I'm going to stick with Everton. And then I, I don't know. There was some particular incident in the game. I just and it, it got to almost at the end, and I said, okay, okay. And there was these um, th- these women around me. That one of them said, I'll give you my scarf. You can wear my scarf, and I'll take that one and get it. I'm like, okay. So I took my scarf off, my Everton scarf, put it under my seat, took her scarf, and I put it on. And the next minute, Manchester United score what is going to be the winning goal. Well, they all thought... I made the difference. So like I'm mobbed at that point. <laughs> you made the difference. That's what they said. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm celebrating and I'm cheering. And it's like, Woohoo! I'm on the winning side. You know, I I switched allegiances. And actually it meant I could celebrate instead of mourning. I could celebrate instead of being miserable and going home, woohoo, I was on the winning side. Jesus is coming, and he says, will you switch allegiances? Will you switch allegiances? I didn't know what the result was going to be of that game. No one did. But we know, well, Jesus knows, God knows, where the future is heading. And the future is heading in a way that if we are not aligned with Jesus, if we're not with him, if we're not clothed in him, Actually, there will be mourning. There will be loss, greater loss than we could ever imagine. And if we're clothed in him, though, what a wonderful time. There will be great celebrations at the end when that final trumpet sounds, as there was when that final whistle blew in that game. Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He comes to us and he says, the way you're heading, it's only going to lead to loss. Come follow me. Follow me before it's too late. Turn away from the way you're headed. Are we willing to do that? Or will we stubbornly continue on, believing actually we can be in control of our own destiny? When we repent and believe, when we repent and believe, it's more than just a one-off emotion as well. It's more than just an experience. It's more than just one day. It's actually being willing to humble ourselves and let God take control. And it's an ongoing thing. Repenting and believing isn't just that one day event that means, okay, we're good. We're good now for the future. And it has very little effect on the rest of our life. It has an implication every single day as we used to not just a one off. I, I used to go enjoy going to concerts in England. We had a big concert venue near our city. Even U two came. And I had to but often you had to book the tickets well in advance. So when U two came, it was one year and two months before the concert was we were lining up to get the tickets, and there was a lot of excitement. We were like, it was four-hour lineup. Um, we were lining up. There was a lot of excitement about the concert. Um, you know, People are excited about it. Um, everyone's chatting. There was a real buzz. And then you get your ticket, and pretty much you forget about it then until the day of the concert. You don't, you're not thinking about it the rest of the time. It's not, I'm not every day, I'm thinking about this U2 concert. No, like, put it aside. In fact, I once went to, there was one concert we bought. You buy it so far in advance, we missed the show. We forgot. (laughs) (laughs) We showed up the next day. It was like, no, this was yesterday. Oh, no. And many people treat Christianity like that. It's like, well, one day they have a powerful experience of God, Okay, I understand, they understand. Those who are in heaven have their eternal future with Jesus. Great, it's all very exciting. We want an eternity with Jesus, so we'll, we'll make a decision. We'll pray a prayer, and then, and then they forget about it. And it's forgotten about. Because death and heaven, they're a long way away. Well, I'm not going to be worrying too much about that now. That's my ticket to heaven, I've got it. I'll file it away, and now I'll just get on with the rest of my life as usual. That's not what Jesus calls us to. That's not what God calls us to at all. Jesus calls us to die to our old life and begin a new one. And it's wholesale change as to who we are and how we live our lives. And so we see that here as we move on in this passage. Jesus walks beside the Sea of Galilee. So he's called people to repent. He's called people to believe the good news. Now, what does that look like? Well, now we see what that looks like. Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee. He sees some fishermen and he calls them to follow him. You notice he goes to them. They don't come to him. It's it's interesting because every other Jewish leader, every other rabbi had students who were coming to them and they would say, will you take me on as your student? And they would would have to prove their worth. They would have to prove that they had got the qualifications or the intellect or the dedication. And they say, oh, please take me on as your student. And then the rabbis would pick certain people. But that's not the way it was with Jesus. Jesus came to The fishermen, Andrew and Simon and uh, James and John. And he came to them and he didn't ask them to display any knowledge. He didn't ask them to pass an exam. He just said, come, come as you are. And that's what Jesus does. We don't have to have any credentials that we can present before Jesus to say, we're worthy enough for you to take us on. He just comes to us. He just comes to us. Jesus comes On their turf. He came on their ground, their workplace. They didn't have to go and find him. They didn't have to go to the holy place. They didn't have to go to the synagogue or the temple. Jesus came to where they were working. And as Jesus' disciples, actually, we're to go to others where they are too. It's wonderful. If if you have come here this morning and you've gathered, this isn't a holy place, but if you've gathered um, uh, with us this morning, great, we welcome you. It's wonderful that you're here. But let's not fool ourselves, church, to think, well, we're just going to sit here and wait for people to come to us. We have to go to them. We have to go to them where they are. Not to say you're doing it all wrong, but to offer the invitation to follow Jesus. In the schools, go to the workplaces, the neighborhoods, the clubs. That's where we call people. And we're not calling people to follow a way of life or a set of laws or a set of rules. We're calling people to come follow a person. That's what Jesus did. Again, here Jesus is unique. None of the prophets called people to follow them. They called people to follow God. No other major religion has its leader or its founder saying, come and follow me. They point people towards God. And Jesus says, come follow me. Me. Jesus was God. But no one else would do that. We're called to follow a person, not as individuals. Jesus called his disciples to follow him in a community. There were 12 of them close to him in the end who would live, work, eat, talk, sleep with Jesus for around three years. And today, Jesus still calls people out of our individuality and our self-centeredness to follow him as part of a vibrant and living community, the church. And what, what else do we see in this passage? We see that repenting and believing means our lives totally changed. We are called into God's plans and purposes for our life. And they're so much bigger than they were before. So here are Simon and Andrew, and they're defined at that point by who they were. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. That's who they were. They were fishermen. What were they doing? They were fishing. And what did they do the next? would They've done the day before, they would have been fishing. And the day before that, they would have been fishing because they were fishermen. They were defined what they, who they were, defined what they did. And Jesus said, come and follow me. And I'm going to take you from being fishermen to being fishers of men, is what the um, old version said. It's some of your mod- modern-day uh, versions might say that a little differently. But uh, you might have said something like, I, I'm sending you out to fish for people. Um, but you kind of lose the, the wordplay in that. Um, what Jesus was bringing was totally life-changing, totally life-changing, you're going to go and, and fish for people. You're going to be fishers of men. And it's not just about going on mission. It's not just about doing a few good things. Actually, the Old Testament refers to fishermen quite a lot in quite a, um, in, in quite a stark way. I mean, well, this is just one in Amos. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks the last of you with fish hooks. The, the imagery of fishing all the way through the Old Testament is one of judgment, of God's judgment. Interestingly, you know, and uh, the similar passages you could read in Jeremiah sixteen, Ezekiel 29, 47, Habakkuk one. When you catch a fish, there are kind of fatal consequences to that fish, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to call you to fish for people. All right, get a hook in your mouth. <laughs> The fish have to die, and that generally fish just die. But we have to die. We have to call people to die to their old way of life before they find new life in Jesus. That's what we're called to do, to bring about a death in people and to then bring them the good news of life. So these disciples, their lives changed forever from this day that they started to follow Jesus. Up until then, they would have been staying locally, to where they were fishing. They were provincial men. They probably wouldn't have gone anywhere apart from occasionally to Jerusalem, to festivals, uh, things like that. But they would have been local in Galilee. But God's plan was much wider. And where did they end up? John ended up going to Ephesus. Peter ended up in Rome. Andrew went as far as Russia, apparently. Their hearts were enlarged. Suddenly, they weren't thinking narrow, provincial They were taking in the whole world. They were thinking of the world for Jesus. Their minds were suddenly overflowing with deep thoughts. You know, you read some of the letters that are being written by Peter and and others, and you say, this was a fisherman? And he's writing deep truths that he's discovered from God. Jesus, following Jesus, takes you out of that narrow mindset and into a much wider thing. You may have lived in Fredericton all your life. You may have only been ever interested in Fredericton, but God may well have plans for you which go far beyond Fredericton, far beyond New Brunswick, far beyond Atlantic Canada or North America. You might never have been a reader or someone who likes to study, but when you come to know Jesus, God can transform you. It can completely change. I met a guy in, in the Philippines, forgive me if I've told you this once, um, in, in Manila. And he used to be an assassin and he was illiterate. He couldn't read and he got saved. He found Jesus in prison. And suddenly God gave him the ability to be able to read the Bible supernaturally. And he started reading and devouring the Bible and preaching to people. He became an educated man when I met him. He was learning all about God from being an illiterate assassin. God transforms our lives. God transforms our lives. Who knows what God is going to do with us when he gets hold of our hearts? Because when we follow Jesus, actually he becomes top priority. What happened to these men? They left their nets, they left their boats, they left their families. Now all of those things are good. It's good to have a livelihood. Families are great. And of course they didn't disown them but their priorities had changed. And the question is, are we willing to leave everything for Christ in order to follow where he leads us? Are we willing to leave our city? Are we willing to leave our friends? Are we willing to leave our job? Are we willing to leave our financial security? Are we willing to leave our family? Are we willing to be misunderstood and misrepresented? When we repent and follow Jesus, we now have the mind of God. We have in mind the things of God, not the things of ourselves. And we have to be ready to follow and leave and go where Jesus takes us. Discipleship isn't some sort of part-time volunteer work which we fit in to our schedule, in our own terms, to our own convenience. Peter knew that. Peter says to Jesus in Mark 10, we've left everything to follow you, things got tough. Things got difficult. People, there was a time when Jesus came and said, and people were leaving him, and and Jesus said, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, where would we go? (laughs) We've nothing left. We've left everything to follow you. That's what it is to follow Jesus. They'd left their securities and their livelihoods For something new and unpredictable. The call to discipleship is scandalous. It's unreasonable. It's risky. It's reckless. It's not common sense. But Jesus promised a great reward. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. That's our reward. Jesus promises as a great reward. And you know what? All of these other things, good as they are, will fade, will be gone. They will be gone. Many of us try and live in two worlds, but we can't. We can't have split allegiances, we can't walk in two different ways when we try and serve god and something else like money actually the love of money crowds out god when we leave all our worldly security behind we're totally dependent on jesus it might look as though we're taking a big chance a big risk putting our lives entirely in god's hands but you know what most people are consumed with anxiety about their earthly destiny. They're consumed with anxiety about relationships, or about money, or about security, or about their health. But if we look outwards to that, if we look outwards, we see things differently. We, we had that wonderful tongue and interpretation this morning, didn't we? Which was along those lines. Basically, it was something along the lines of, when I look at my situation, I just get stuck. I get stuck. I, I I can't move. That's what happens. We get we look at internally at our situation. We're paralyzed with fear. Are we making the right decision or not? Oh, we we imagine it's got consequences which are huge. But then, Jody Jody brought this prayer and said, "But I choose to look at you. I choose to look at what's actually true." And in in myself, I feel I can't find a way, but in looking to you, I find my way. I find my way as I look to you. Mm -hmm. That's how we find life. The price may seem high, but it's not. In reality, we're valuing things which aren't really worth as much as we think. The Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Philippians, whatever were gains to me, and he's talked about all the achievements that he's had. He's talked about everything. He was a Pharisee. He had the qualifications. He had the, back, the upbringing, the credentials. Everything was lining up. And he said, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. And I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He's found Christ. And he's saying all these other things that seem so important. They're garbage. They're garbage. Because I found him. We have the chance to follow Jesus. He calls us today in the same way that he called his disciples. He comes to us. He's here, he's saying, repent, believe the good news, follow me. But we have to be decisive. What are we going to do? Are we going to follow? Well, life's just too difficult at the moment. Yeah, he comes to our darkness. He comes to us in our darkness. And he brings light. He comes to us doesn't offer us something for nothing some people say that that's what grace is something for nothing it's not something for nothing it's something for everything actually it cost him everything and his call to us is will you leave everything in terms of all your hold on it you're gripping tightly onto your way will you follow me he's here today will we follow him Will we trust him? Will we allow him to transform our world? I pray we will, because it's the only way. It really is. It's the only way. And the invitation's there for you this morning. Come, follow. I'm going to pray. I'm going to hand you back to Joe. But let's come before God. Father God, Lord, I thank you that you sent Jesus into our world. You sent Jesus into our darkness, even when things seem bleak, even when things seem uncertain. God, Jesus came. He came to us. He came where we are. We didn't have to find him. And God, I thank you. Jesus, I thank you. You're calling us today to follow you. And Lord, as your people... We want to say, yes, we'll go. Lord, you know the fears that we have. You know the uncertainties. You know that we think, oh, we just can't do it. God, I pray for us all here today. Give us the faith. Give us the courage. Help us to see things from your perspective, Lord, and walk free. In Jesus' name we pray.